Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning to Caroline Miley. Good morning, Jane. Thank you. Oh, it's nice to have a new face in here and an, a most interesting book. And later on, uh, I'll be talking with Lorena Hastings. So, but first of all, if you were an artist, would you paint what you liked or what would sell? This is an artistic dilemma which has gone on forever. And it's a heart of, at Caroline Miley's book, The Competition. And welcome again. Now, you've got Edward Armager. He's an artist. And, well, from your book, let's read about what he thinks about art from page 10. Drawing, to me, was like life itself. To take a sheet of paper and a pencil and make something where before there had been nothing. To feel the paper under my fist and the sound of the crayons whisper across the page. To bring to life on the blank surface line, light and shadow. A tree, a cloud, a river, men, horses, dogs, a landscape, a whole world. That was drawing to me. And after that, painting. All that drawing had to offer with the addition of colour. Colour. All the hues of nature in my gift and the perfumes of turpentine and oil and the feel of the brush in my hand, and the way the paint glided from the brush to the canvas and gave it life. That was art to me. Look, I really enjoyed reading all about making artistic works in this book. You know, things that I I just, well, just accepted and I took for granted. Like, things like how an artist would turn a painting upside down to check if it was in, if it was balanced. Okay, and um, having to take into consideration the drying time before other layers of paint could be taken. Mm -hmm. And I suppose in literature, if a book is written in a first person, you know, we we tend to feel more for that character as we do with um, Edward Armiger in your book. But I didn't realise that artists can manipulate us too by how they place the subject or what they do with that subject in their painting. Yes, there's a great deal, of course, to painting, and especially to oil painting, which was the professional artist's medium at the time. Um, Of course, uh, there was only oil or watercolour. The newer media Mm. hadn't been invented. And there is a great deal of technique, not only in how to represent a horse or a dog or a a person, but knowing about those things like what oils to mix pigments with and how long it takes to dry. If you put a a thin coat over a thick coat too quickly, the top coat will crack. So are you an artist? No, I'm an art historian. Uh, Okay, okay. Well, from Chapter 1, we read that Edward Armiger met his best friend Campbell at the Royal Academy. When was this? This would have been um, in the round about 1800. Well, I think they were probably there in about, yes, 1802 or whatever because he'd been graduated 10 years at the time when the book opens. 
Okay, so way back then, mm-hmm. and you have given us the term, and it's what what were your nudes? <laughs> Pulchritudinous. Pulchritudinous <laughs> nudes. Well, those are Hallett's nudes. They're pulchritudinous. <laughs> um, and, and nudes for painting, they get pretty well paid. Nine and a half pence an hour in those times. Yes. Well, good models uh, oh. good, and, and a better, uh, a top quality model. The one I mention in the book, Strauger, who was a porter, at the Royal Academy, he's a real character, and he was a top model. He'd been in the lifeguards, he'd been a professional soldier, um, and then uh, uh, when he left became a porter and so on. But he had a terrific physique, apparently. Right. (laughs) And was probably also very good at posing. Mm. All those hours of standing at attention, Mm. probably. Mm. Well, now, we should sort of say this is over Georgian time. So is this, Mm. you mentioned an art historian, is this your preferred time? It's a period that I've been really interested in for a long time. Um, It's probably initially by reading Jane Austen and then beginning to wonder what the other people in Jane Austen did when they weren't in a Jane Austen novel, as it were. (laughs) Um, But it's a a fascinating period, both in art, in society, in culture, the time of the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution. It's it's in some ways the first of the modern eras, sometimes called early modern. Um, Well, it is is hmm. sort of going back more about the art and also the the changes in the techniques. You know, Hmm. now you can just go and buy a tube of paint, but not then. Not then. You had Hmm. to uh, circle the muller. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, you had to grind your own pigments. There were people called colourmen, which includes uh, companies like Reeves that are still around today. Um, and uh, the colourman was, uh, they imported the pigments, which included things like lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, mm. uh, which makes the beautiful blue ultramarine. And uh, they imported those, and some of them they ground up themselves, and there was even a, shall we say, a luxury line. A luxury uh, <laughs> Where people with money, they they would uh, grind them up with the oils and so on that were necessary to turn a block of, uh, of mm. er- ochre, for example, of earth, mm. uh, into uh, a paint, and they would put them up in little pig's bladders about the size of a walnut. So that was before they invented paint tubes. But otherwise, you bought the stuff either in powder or in lumps and yeah. did it yourself. <laughs> And things like using bread to rub mm. off the excess of pencil lead. I thought that was gee. <laughs> okay, rubber well, had uh, rubber comes from the New World. Ah, Edward Armiger and Campbell mixed with a wide circle of artists, and some of them are a lot more successful than others. How did artists make their money? Um, through patronage, largely. The This was just the beginning of the era. We're just on the verge of the introduction of private art galleries. Mainly you had patrons. They came to your studio, Mm. uh, which you sort of tarted up for the occasion and uh, offered them glasses of sherry and little biscuits and so forth. And people came to your studio and wandered around and uh, with any luck bought something. Or you got a commission. And then there was word of mouth that... 
once you had painted particularly, you know, Lady So-and-So's portrait or Mrs. So-and-So's, but also you exhibited at the Royal Academy. Ah. And people saw your work, they could purchase your work. And the Royal Academy was very democratic. It was the most democratic one in Europe because the, uh, despite it being the Royal Academy, that meant it had the patronage of the Prince Regent. Um, but the artists themselves formed the committee and selected the artworks that were to be displayed. Selected the artworks. So, you know, it, it really, if you wanted something selected, you had to perhaps not be too avant-garde. You know, you had to mm. paint what you knew the committee members wanted. Well, yes and no, because the other thing was that the paintings were submitted and still are submitted under a, a number rather than a name, oh. which meant that a, a little bit later on, women artists had a much better run. Although, as Campbell, I think, remarks in the course of the book, that they all well know the style of the more famous and better known people. But at the same time, it was, it was, a, it was run by artists for artists, but it was a very limited forum and so at this time, the British institution started up, which also showed art once a year. Mm. Um, and then there was the Society of Painters in Watercolours, because those didn't exhibit watercolours. And there might be la uh, lady amateurs that, that sort of put in their paintings. Indeed. And, oh, don't want them there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this brings us back to the title of the book, The mm. Competition. What was the competition about? Well, I framed the, the competition as, of course, um, it's a competition put up by the Royal Academy. Now, the Royal Academy is, of course, far from fictional, but the competition mm. itself is fictional. And uh, a competition to produce a painting representative of the spirit of the present age. The spirit of the present age, which brings us right now and mm. to 1810 and mm. a term that I think a lot of people will know, Luddites. Mm. Luddites. Mm. This is the um, mm. when technology or machines were taking over the workforce, which led into the Industrial Revolution. So... What took um, our uh, artist, Edward Armiger, out of London? Mm. Yes, he, uh, uh, yes, it is, it is a, a complete change of life for him. Mm. He goes to Bath where he meets a, a patron of his friend um, Campbell, who's a portrait painter, and Campbell introduces his friend to this potential client and he gets a commission to go up north um, to paint Mr Hall's house. And Mr Hall owns woollen mills. Mm. And uh, Edward is also rather struck, or I might say absolutely smitten, by Mr Hall's beautiful younger daughter. So he's very keen to go up north. And when he's in north, up north, he um, does a tour of the woollen mills and he begins to meet the skilled cloth dressers who have been put out of work by the invention of uh, gig mills and weaving equipment. So this, and this is really interesting because now we sort of look back to what's happening in Parliament at the time. And mm. I, you know, I didn't realise, I knew his name, Lord Byron, but I didn't realise mm. that he was brought into Parliament and so importantly. Well, he, yeah, Byron was a young man at this time 
But his, uh, the, he was, of course, a member of the House of Lords, which he was a, a, a new member of the House of Lords, new, pretty new at the time because he was I just inherited the title. But his uh, seat, Newstead Abbey, is in Nottinghamshire, and this was the place of the lace makers and the stocking knitters. And stocking knitters sounds like rather an odd occupation, mm. but let's say people who made socks and so every person in the world needed a lot of socks. So stocking knitting was very big and they had just introduced machines to do it. Um, so Byron was very well aware of this and his maiden speech in the House of Lords was in defence of the skilled workmen who were being put out of work. It was an amazing speech and it was his maiden speech. Mm. So not only were people, you know, very highly professional workers being put out of work, but it was also the time of a drought and famine in England. So, you know, out of work, poverty, there was just no money around, especially in sort of the parishes that might have helped to look after the poor. Uh, a quote from the book, some people think that the government should make regulations to make business proceed in a more orderly manner. And we were talking prior to coming in, just the similarities between the Industrial Revolution and the technological revolution that's going on now. Yes, indeed. It was, uh, um, it was in many ways very, very similar. That was the first wave of the Industrial Revolution when skilled handwork, like weaving uh, and cloth dressing, um, which was finishing off the the cloth, which you did with enormous shears and was a very skilled mm. uh, occupation, was being uh, put out of work by uh, the invention of machinery that would do this. Um, today, uh, we're in the second wave of the Industrial Revolution where the mechanisation of labour is being replaced by the digitisation, mm. where industrial robots and computers are doing the work. Well, a lot of the people out of work could only see one option, which was actually to break mm. the machines. Mm. And this is where we get the, the Luddites in. And so what was br coming through in uh, Parliament at that stage was the Frame Breakers Bill. Yes. Yes, they wanted to... Well, it's always the same, isn't it? They wanted to criminalise these, bring in new laws, get tough on crime, yeah, I, as mm. we'd say now. They wanted to... They, the people who owned the factories, and of course it was then as now, but much more so then, because um, ordinary people didn't have the vote. So I think at one stage Edward reflects that they shouldn't break the machines, they shouldn't rise up and riot, but then when someone like Lord Byron or the Earl of Shaftesbury wants to make a point, they can speak in Parliament and they have influential friends. When people like the Luddites, who were, as I emphasise, not, not scum of the earth or, or uh, rough labourers, these were educated, skilled tradesmen, um, when they saw their livelihood going forever and the livelihood of their children mm. for generations, and they were right, no one took any notice of them. They had no voice in Parliament. So there's this threat of violence. But mm -hmm. the, and what what did the the powers that rule do? They put troops in all the yes. towns. <laughs> yes, there were no police then, so yeah. the army was used to. Uh, they say there were more troops in England at that time 
um, putting down riots and so on than there were fighting Napoleon in Europe. Mm. And then we meet Pastor Summers and his daughter Rachel. Now, mm. they want to do something. They want mm. to help. They write something. But then they ask Edward Armager to illustrate these pamphlets to be given out to... Um, yes, they just... were... Well, they were essentially posters, broadsheets. This was the voice of those who... It was it was a common way of communicating with the public. Cartoons, lampoons, broadsheets, which were just handed out in the street or they were available at various shops and so on. Um, yes, so, in fact, we're still doing that, aren't we, really? Printing stuff and handing it out. And, yes, so theirs were to try and explain the... Mm. So we get this oh, political story, we get the mm. art history and what's going on in London and mm. uh, this with the competition which sort of mm. brings around rivals between mm. the artistic foe, the artistic group. And, of course, you know, Edward Armiger, he's he's a young man. We've mm. got a bit, bit of love, <laughs> love interest there. Mm. We, we do learn about his early spurning uh, of oh, Belinda spurned him with no way because just didn't have enough money and then mm. his lust life with Laura the married mm. woman mm. will the very pretty but very young Francesca Hall mm. accept him or perhaps his housekeeper knows who would suit him better <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, poor Edward his love life isn't terribly successful and as he points out not having money or position was a real drawback in those days mm. Those days, and mm. I love a bit of the writing of the time, a chop house where they served very credible rabbit pie and gooseberry tart with porter for one and sixpence. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also the time of men's hairstyle changing. Mm. But one of the artists still powdered his hair, perhaps to disguise his baldness. <laughs> oh, the men, the men. Um Caroline Marley, look, this book, The Competition, mm. it mm. it has, you could sort of tell, all of your knowledge mm. about art history in it mm. and it's linked with a very readable storyline about this Edward Armiger character. Mm. So you know, how did you get it all together? Oh, dear, yes, the craft of the writer. Mm. Well, these are two long-term interests of mine, the Georgian era and the art of it, a time of enormous change from... Uh, the beginnings of Constable and Turner, which is radical, very radical departures. And I have put on my website the paintings that were put, uh, that were exhibited in 1812, and you can see the colossal difference between them. Um, but also I've had a long-term interest in the condition of, of uh, work and the Luddites and those radical movements. Putting it together, um, that's the craft of interweaving stories, of trying to work out the best way to to tell the stories that you want to take and uh, do want to, to put forward. And I've always been interested in the position of ordinary people, mm -hmm. um, how they got through life at the time and how similar it was to now and how different. So... You really do give us a very good angle into the Thwaites' life. He was the um, the cropper, and mm. uh, you know, sort of his oh his pride with his family, and mm. uh, just mm. his pride in his own ability to do mm. the craft that he did. And mm. of course, all gone. You know, there's nothing yes. for him to do. You know, he doesn't know how to farm. You know, <laughs> no, that wasn't his yes. job. You know, he yeah. He inherited the his his business from his father. Yeah, so these were. 
these were people who ran small businesses. They were, as I emphasise again, very skilled tradesmen. They were the elite of workers in England, these sorts of people, shearmen and cloth dressers. Um, and, um, but keep in mind, too, this is the time of the French Revolution mm -hmm. and they're reading people like the, the Rights of Man by Tom Paine and, and they're also reading, as, uh, as Edward does, uh, Cobbett's Political Register where he talks about how, you know, a good government is one that looks after its people and a bad government is one that doesn't. Um, so all of these currents are in the air at the time. But yes, these men, the Luddites, were by and large skilled, educated men who were reading this radical literature. And Carolyn Marley, do you see some um, connection with today? <laughs> oh, yes. Some of these things never seem to go away. We... Um, and again, as they probably didn't say at the time, you know, it's the rich what has the money, it's the poor what gets the blame. Yeah. Um, and, but yes, the increasing de-skilling of large classes of people is going on apace today. And in fact, whole craft art skills, I mean, ones to do things that you make with your hands, that you have a carefully built up knowledge. Um, I mean, carpentry is an example, you mm. know, um, wood carving, um, all sorts of skilled trades that were once very profitable small businesses and large businesses. The mechanisation and now the digitisation of the workforce has taken that away and, and it continues. Okay, out of politics, back into mm. literature. And, um, you know, you say you're an art historian. Yes. How much writing practice have you had? Because, you know, this, a lot of this sits mm. very, very well. Is this your first book? Uh, by no means, no, although it's my first published book. Um, I had been writing non-fiction. As an art historian, I was trained in academic writing. Um, I did honours and a master's or a PhD and so forth. So, and I'd, I'd published um, art history books and so on before, but writing fiction is something completely different. This is uh, really my fourth book, uh -huh. um, but it's the first one that I was happy enough with to publish. Right. Look, we're going to talk about uh, the whole publishing way very soon, but first of all, I'd like to um, hopefully find um, Lorena Hastings on the line. Hello, Jen. Ah, Lorena, lovely to hear from you. Now, I, I've just been talking with Carolyn um, Miley about her writing, and she's she's in a small she's in a writing group, but it's a very local writing group. I think it's the Clifton Hill Writing Group. Hmm. Know the area well. Wonderful but people. You, Lorena Hastings, had a much broader writing group. Yes, I do. There are. Over 50 of us now, and we come from 45 countries. So where did your writing adventure start? Well, it started... I had an illness, and I couldn't do very much. So what I did was I went onto the internet and onto a MOOC, which is a massive online open course, and there was one there on writing, so I hadn't written anything of consequence for a long time. So I joined the group. And out of that group came 35 writers, including myself. And we were from 
every country. But some of the countries, it was very hard for local writers to be heard in the third world. So we decided to get together and to write together and write a short story anthology so that everybody could tell their story. So you called this a magic diary. How does a magic diary work? Well, actually, it was... um, it's uh, it's it is a ma- it's a magic travelling diary. We wanted the concept of a traveller that went around collecting stories, but the problem was we didn't want the traveller to be of any particular nationality or religion because most of our group have a storytelling. Uh, very strong tradition like Australia, for instance, or India or Europe. So what we chose was a magic diary who was itinerant and it turned up in a place, the writer wrote their story and the magic diary moved to the next writer and so on. And basically it was the because all of our stories were so different, our experiences were so different, because this group covers Zambia and Afghanistan and Japan and Canada, North and South America. We cover all the continents. India um, is a very important country to us because the originator of this idea Jaya Sengupta is from India, but she is also an editor with an Indian publishing house, so she has enormous expertise, and it was her expertise and her vision that gained us um, so much um, leverage and actually allowed us to put the book together. I don't think without Yaya um, it would just be uh, 50 stories, uh, 45 stories from, or 50 stories it is, yes, 50, um, from all over the world and they may have still been there. And you found an illustrator too? Yes. Well, my, I actually draw and paint. I've had 25 exhibitions over the years. But one of my friends in England is a as an illustrator. Her name's Pat Southern Pierce. She's also a fabulous writer. She wrote a book about witches and it became a BBC series. So she's a very bright cookie. And her drawings are absolutely ideal for a travelling diary. So she did all the major illustrations and I backed up with a few small drawings which was a wonderful cooperation, but her drawings are fantastic. So you've got this online book that is illustrated and represents the work of um, all these people from all over the world. But the book would be so big. We had to break it up into three separate volumes. The first volume is the Americas, North and South, and Australia. Right, so uh, and that's available now on Amazon. And what are you doing with the profits? Well, the profits, because we believe so strongly that everybody needs a voice, particularly people in the third world. And the only way you really have a clear voice is if you ha- if you're literate and if you're educated enough to be able to put your idea forward. So all of the uh, authors and all of the, and both of us illustrators, 
decided to donate our work and the book was is a professional book. It has been designed by layout specialists and book designers. Yaya would have absolutely nothing less being a professional herself. So it's a professionally designed book and the only people who received a brass razoo <laughs> are in fact the professional layout and book designers. All the rest of the money well, goes to a literacy so charity. How, so how, um, Lorena Hastings, how can people get this book? Have they can go to Amazon and look for A Pocket Full of Dreams, A Travelling Diary. Okay. Well, hopefully we've we've interested enough people for them to actually do that. Now, I'm going to come back because, you know, you said how important editing is in a book. And I'm going to pick up with uh, Caroline Marley here, mm-hmm. who um, is also on the program because she's also self-published a book. What did you do about editing? Yes, you're right, Jan. Uh, editing is enormously important and any writer who's able to work um, all the time with a really good editor is very, very lucky. Um, I had my book mentored by terrific industry professionals, um, so that was in lieu of editing. I have some experience in writing myself, but yes, mm, uh, I had yeah. it men- mentored by two different people. Yeah. So, look, with both of these, hopefully it goes well. Of course, with self-published books, what, what the hardest thing is distribution and spreading the word. And that's what we do here on 3CR. 3CR, coming up to our subscriber week, we do stuff that a lot of other people don't do. I'd like to say, because my book is self-published, if people want to uh, get a copy or I'd like people to look at my website, which is www.carolinemiley.com, the book is available online and in some bookshops, but you can also contact me uh, on the website. It's Caroline Miley, M-I-L-E-Y. Well, thank you very much.